Okay, let's uh, just bow our hearts as we come to God's word together. Father, we do come humbly before your word because Lord, we recognize that your word is not just some old, dusty, historical book. But this is the word of God. The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who upholds all things, sustains everything by your incredible power. And Lord, this is your revelation, your word to us. So Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. Help us to understand more of you. And Father, just cut us apart, we pray. Father, your word tells us of itself that it is living and powerful. Able to divide between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Father, sometimes in our, in our own lives we get confused. Lord, we try and put that which is fleshly to the fore and we don't put the emphasis on that which is spiritual. So Father, this morning we pray, we ask you just to do that work in us, Lord, that sometimes is painful, but Lord, we know ultimately will be rewarding because it will draw us closer and deeper into you. And so Lord, we just give you this time. Father, speak to us, we pray. Lord, just challenge our preconceptions. And Lord, may we be open to you this morning. Lord, we just give you this time for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the first section of the Gospel of John. This week we're going to look at the second half of the book from chapter 11 through to chapter 21. Now, the first 10 chapters, 10 chapters of the book cover around three and a half years. They really deal with the ministry of Jesus from the time that Jesus steps into ministry as John baptizes him right the way up to the three and a half year point pretty much leading up to what we could call, uh, sometimes called Passion Week. Um, chapter 11 gives us the, the, the kind of sets the scene. It gives us the introduction in a sense to all that is about to follow in the final week that Jesus spends with his disciples leading up to the crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection as well. So chapters 12 through 20 cover just one week. Now that's incredible in itself. This is probably one of the most detailed portions of scripture. Because we almost have a day-by-day account of some of the things that take place. Certainly the detail we're given here uh, is details that we don't find in some of the other Gospels. And very, very applicable to the church. As I said, I believe it's the most important week in human history. Because this is what it's all about. This is the, the week that Jesus came to fulfill the work of the Father, the work the Father had given him to do. And we'll see that this is actually stated uh, really in the, the text itself as we get into chapter 12 in a moment. Now, just before we get into the, the text itself, I just want to just draw your attention to the fact that there are countless prophecies that are fulfilled in these seven days that prove beyond any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. If anybody's got a question as to whether the Bible is true, whether Jesus really is the Messiah, we just need to look at the things that were fulfilled in this seven-day period. It's absolutely breathtaking. Now, if you took just eight of those prophecies, there's plenty more, we'll look in a moment, but just eight of those, it's been calculated that the odds of them all being fulfilled by one man is estimated at being some of the region of 10 to the power 28. So that's 10 with 28 zeros after it. It's a number that we can't even begin to imagine. Now, just to give you some kind of idea, uh, some have suggested that the total population of the world ever, every single person that has ever li- lived or existed, is somewhere in the region of 100 billion. That's 10 to the power 11. So that's 10 with 11 zeros after it. Now, to be fair, what we want to do is divide that probability we started with by the number of people that have lived. 
Now, that gives us a probability that any one person could really have fulfilled all of these prophecies. And actually, if we narrow it down to the week itself, it becomes even more complicated than this. But let's just settle for this. We're looking at a number of 10 to the 17. Now, you and I have no idea how big that number is. If we were to get, just to give us some kind of idea of what we're talking about, if we were going to get a bucket and we were to fill it up with 10p coins and we were to mark one of those coins uh, in red marker both sides um, so that marker wasn't going to rub off and we put that coin, that, that one coin in the bucket, we wouldn't have to just fill this room. We wouldn't actually have to just fill Haven or Hampshire. It actually would be bigger than the whole of the UK. We have to look at something far beyond anything that we could think of naturally. We look at something like the state of Texas in America. And we'd have to fill the state of Texas two feet deep in 10p pieces. I don't think we get permission to do this, but let's just hypothetically. Just fill the whole of Texas two feet deep in 10p pieces. And in amongst all of those millions and millions and billions of coins, there'll be just that one. And the chance of you reaching your hand in and choosing that one coin, well, that gives you some idea of the chance of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. It's incredible. It's breathtaking. Now, in actual fact, if we look at 16 prophecies, just to give you some idea of how this scales up, there's actually over 300 we could choose from. Not all just from this week, but specifically referring to Jesus and his work and ministry. Many of them, indeed, are centered on this one week. But assuming the same kind of likelihood, the same probability, we're dealing with a number that, again, is just just impossible to try and comprehend. It's 10 to the 56. That's 10 with 56 zeros after it. Okay. Now, again, let's just divide that by the total number of people, hypothetically, that's ever lived. Gives us somewhere in the region of a number of 10 to the 45. So that's 10 with 45 zeros. Okay. If we're going to use the same kind of idea, so we're going to mark one 10p coin, what kind of area would we need to cover? And how many coins would we need? Well, you'd have to fill an area, believe it or not, that is so large, you'd be looking at something in the region of 30 times the distance of the earth to the sun. Fill that with coins, and in there, one coin is the one you want. It just, it's absolutely staggering that people can turn around and say, oh, I don't think Jesus is the Messiah. When you look at these prophecies and the fact that they were fulfilled, and it's historical record that we've got this down, that these prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus in this one week. Now, just one further, just to show you how just extreme this gets. If you took 48 prophecies, and again, remember, there's over 300 we could look at. We're dealing with a number that's just just absolutely colossal. It's 10 to the power of 168. And by the way, mathematically, anything that's bigger than 10 to the 50 is considered absurd. Okay, impossibly can't happen is basically the mathematical um, perception on this. So we're dealing with a number that somewhere, again, we take the population of 10 to the 157th. Okay, so that's the number of some individual fulfilling, eight, fulfilling just 48 of these prophecies. Again, that's only you know, a, a sixth of all, the, the, there's over 300 of them. Now, coins don't work. Just, they're just too, too big a item to use. So you need to take something like an atom. So if we took every single atom in the universe, now it's estimated that there's somewhere in the region of 10 to the power of 66 atoms in the universe. Before every atom, we're going to make a copy universe with just as many atoms in it. All right? In other words, we're going to just you know, every single atom will have its own universe with the same number of atoms. So we're dealing with a number there of 10 to the 132. 
Now, if you could repeat that exercise ever since the universe began, and just, although we don't accept this, of course, you know, if you assumed a 17 billion year old universe, even then, on that kind of time scale, every single second over 17 billion years, you were to repeat that exercise, you still only get up to the number 10 to the 149. Now, the number we were trying to get to was 10 to the 157, which means we'd still be 100 million times short. The point I'm trying to make is that it's ludicrous for anybody to turn around and say that Jesus is not the Messiah. The evidence is overwhelming. In fact, you know, again, just 48, looking at there, of 300 prophecies. Chuck Misler uses this example in his Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. He makes this comment. He says, I am more sure that Jesus Christ is the Messiah than I am about any other fact in the universe, including my own name. We can be absolutely certain that Jesus is the Messiah. And this one week that we're going to just go into now and study uh, this morning, this week we refer to as Passion Week, is breathtaking. It is irrefutable proof that Jesus not only is the Messiah, but he is the Son of God, God manifest in the flesh. We can be absolutely confident of our position, our standing in Jesus Christ. John states his reason for writing. If we look in John chapter 20, it says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, in John's account. He says, but these are written. So the things that John has recorded, he says, I've written that you might believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You see, that exercise we just did a moment ago, and again, you don't need to worry if it it lost you the math, don't worry about that. The point is that Jesus really is God. Jesus is the Messiah. And John writes the things that he writes because he wants you to be absolutely convinced that this is the truth, and the point of it all is that you might have life in his name. Not just that you might be fascinated by these things, Not that it might be interesting, but that you might have life. The purpose of all of this is that we would come to know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Now, not surprisingly, we mentioned this last week, over a hundred times we find the word believe or a derivative thereof through John's Gospel. This is John's intent. He wants to convince you that Jesus really is who he said he was. And as we said last week, the word itself that's used, the the word believe, it means to have faith in uh, or really to entrust one's spiritual well-being to a person. And in this case, namely Christ. Well, if we just quickly review what we said last week, Jesus had come as the light of the world to bring this light into the darkness. Of course, we were in darkness. We were blind to our true spiritual condition. But rather than just take it on faith... And sadly, so many Christians seem to be content just to accept, well, I believe in God just because uh, the vicar does, or my parents do, or, you know, we're a Christian country, or, you know, those kind of nonsense reasons. That's not good enough. What's the reason we believe? Well, John gives us evidence. And Jesus provides himself here, many witnesses in this gospel, to attest to his being the Son of Man, the Messiah. The Jews, of course, recognized what Jesus was doing. They recognized that, in a sense, this was a, kind of almost a legal courtroom drama where Jesus was being accused and he brings these witnesses forward one after another after another. But the Jews, although they understand it, they reject the claim. They're not ignorant to it. They know what he's saying, but they reject his claim to be God. And consequently, they therefore seek to stone him for blasphemy. 
You know, people that say that Jesus never claimed to be God have never studied John's Gospel. Because the whole thrust of the Gospel is Jesus demonstrating who he is and the the Pharisees, the religious leaders saying, but you can't be God because that's not possible. We don't accept your witness. And that's why they wanted to stone him. Now, there's two unresolved issues, really, that kind of hang over from the first ten chapters. Firstly, it is the reaction of the Jews to Jesus. What were they going to do with this problem that Jesus is presenting them with? You know, their hatred had been festering all the way through this. But the other thing was the secrecy surrounding Jesus. Because although Jesus was showing the disciples, showing the, the, uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and so on, who he was, through the things that he was saying, he wasn't overtly coming out and telling the masses. He wasn't going to the people. And so we see there's a deliberate suppression by Jesus himself of who he is. And that's very strange. But we see it all the way through. The Jews had tried to force a public confession as the Jewish leaders, because they, in a sense, wanted to trap him in his own words. And all the way through we see Jesus saying, just as he did at the miracle at Cana with the water turning into wine, my time is not yet come. See that you tell no man, and so on. All the way. Jesus wouldn't play their game. It was all an issue of timing. And this was God's timing. And Jesus was working to God's timetable. Now both of these things reached their crescendo in chapter 11 and chapter 12. So let's jump in and look at some of these things. Well, chapter 11, just picking up verse 44. We know the account very well. It's the account, of course, of Lazarus. Lazarus who is raised from the dead. And if we read there, that he that was dead came forth bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. You know, this is a, a great picture of us. You know, of course, an amazing experience of Lazarus in a sense. But really there, there is a, um, a picture of our own lives, the resurrection that's promised for those who are believers. That these current grave clothes, this, this kind of body we dwell in, this temporal home, will be given way to a new eternal body. And that there is a resurrection, a resurrection promised for those who are Christ's. And the other interesting thing we see, that actually this leads to Jesus' own crucifixion. The fact that Jesus raised this individual, this sinner, from the dead, necessitated, or the end of this was, that Jesus himself went to the grave. And we see a very interesting picture, of course, with ourselves here. We read in John 11, uh, 45, Then many of the Jews, notice we have many of the Jews, which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. I mean, this was an incredible miracle. Somebody being raised from the dead in front of them. He'd been dead for four days. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man does many miracles. We've got to put a stop to this. Now, this seems to be the final harvest before nightfall in a sense. It's interesting. There's a lot of parallels we can draw through scripture. But this is the last time we read of people believing prior to the crucifixion. Apart from, of course, the thief on the cross. But with the exception of that one individual, what we see here is a number of uh, people coming to the knowledge that Jesus is who he said he was. But then it's almost as if the curtain's drawn. And from this point, there's this rejection of the Pharisees and everything now is set on killing and crucifying Jesus. In John 11:48, we read, If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. 
And this was the problem that the Jews had. They didn't want Jesus to, to gain this reputation, his notoriety. Because we then read, And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. Now this is the major underlying issue. That they were concerned that because of what Jesus was doing, it was going to lead to an uprising against Rome. And of course, they knew that that was what the Messiah was to do. To set them free from their enemies. You know, countless scriptures we could refer to. We looked at some last week. But the Jews were awaiting a national deliverer. And that is what had been prophesied specifically of Jesus. Back in Luke chapter 132. That he shall reign over the house of Jacob. This prophecy given to Mary. Uh, Back in Micah in the Old Testament. It was prophesied that out of Bethlehem would come the one to be ruler in Israel. Well that means putting down all foreign powers. In Luke chapter 1 verse 54 and 55. We're told that, that he is, speaking of God, he's holding his servant Israel, helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers Abraham and to his seed forever. These promises of a deliverer. Zechariah, as he's speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us on account of the one who Mary was carrying. And so this had been prophesied. This was their Jewish, or the Jewish expectation. In Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi arrived, they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? You know, none of those prophecies were wasted. None of those promises failed. It just wasn't the timing. And the problem is, the disciples didn't understand that. And of course, the religious leaders of Israel didn't understand that. They thought that Jesus was going to establish and try and establish his kingdom here and now. And, of course, we read in the book of Acts, and we'll look at this as we move into our study of Acts next week. Even the disciples thought, they said in Acts chapter 1-6, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, they were saying, okay, Jesus, we, we didn't get the crucifixion, now we understand, you've risen again, we're saved, they, they're starting to piece it together. But it's like, okay, now are you going to save Israel? It wasn't that God had finished with that plan. It wasn't as if that had now been dealt with and you know, no longer was that going to apply. God still had a plan and a purpose and still has a plan and a purpose for Israel. Jesus will sit on the throne of David as has been promised. Jesus will rule over the house of Israel. But it wasn't the time. And of course the Pharisees were concerned that it was. The disciples were just confused about when it would be. And we read in chapter, sorry, verse 49, still in chapter 11, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, you know, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. Those are incredible words from somebody who was rejecting Jesus, saying that, hey, look, if we let Jesus carry on, the whole nation will suffer. But it's better for us that we let one man die than the whole nation perish. And in a sense, there's a prophetic overtone to this. Because Jesus, as one man, did die. That salvation could go to the whole world. To the whole world not perish. Of course, that's down to every single individual to make that choice for themselves as to whether they're prepared to accept the invitation that God has given and so the plan is hatched by the Jewish leaders to get rid of Jesus. Why? On account, primarily, or, or in a sense, the, the, the tipping point was the resurrection of Lazarus. The one thing that, that, that Jesus does at this point that really 
just forces them into this decision. They have no other option now. They have to get rid of Jesus. And so we go into John chapter 12, and it starts now six days before the Passover. Now we've looked at this at various times in the past, the study, the plan of Passion Week, how it all works out, and uh, just cutting to the chase, the resurrection, obviously we know occurs on the Sunday, the first day of the week, the day before that would have been the Saturday Sabbath, the day before that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the 15th of the month, and then the Passover on the Thursday, the 14th in the Jewish calendar is the day that Jesus, as our Passover, was crucified. Yes, the crucifixion takes place on the Thursday, tradition has had this idea of good friday it came in somewhere seemingly around about the third century this idea that the crucifixion took place on a friday and it's stuck ever since well as jesus said tradition makes the word of no effect and it's very easy to see from the details in scripture that the only day the crucifixion could have occurred was on the thursday now and of course that makes perfect sense of our three days and three nights because we have the thursday evening um, is the first night the, the friday becomes the first day Friday evening becomes the second night, the Saturday the second day, Saturday evening the third night, and then Jesus rises on the third day. So Jesus, again, in the grave for three days, three nights, as have been prophesied, rising on the third day. Now, again, we have the six days before the Passover, Jesus arrives in Bethany. Up until this point, after the raising of Lazarus, Jesus has kept a low profile. He's gone out into the area of Judea, but outside of the city somewhere, just keeping out of the way. It wasn't the right time, but now it is. And Jesus arrives on the evening of the, the Saturday, uh, in the evening as the Sabbath ends, it gets to the new day with the Jews, and Jesus arrives and seems to seemingly has an evening meal with them, uh, with Lazarus there as well. And then the next day is the day we refer to as Palm Sunday. It's one of the few things tradition has actually got right. The triumphal entry as Jesus rides in. And then we've got our six days. But if you notice, and we'll look at this a little later, this six days will take us to the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread because the day for the Jews begins in the evening. So here we get to this point. This is where this scripture, six days before the Passover. So we have to conclude on this basis alone that the Passover in one sense, begins on the evening here of the, what for the Jews would be the evening of the 15th, but the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we'll see why in a little bit of time. We'll go through that. Now, in John 12, verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come. That's it. That should be just the, the, the kind of mark that. That's, that's so significant. Because all the way through, mine hour is not yet come. See, you'll tell no man. All those things that Jesus said. Now, he says to his disciples, the hour is come. This is it. We're here. Finally arrived at this particular moment. That the Son of Man should be glorified. All the way through, as I said, so many scriptures we could reference where Jesus had played down who he was, walked away, wouldn't allow them to take him and make him king after the feeding of the 5,000 and so on. Jesus also says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Interesting that this would actually happen as Jesus' body is being put into the ground, it becomes the feast of unleavened bread. Just as this grain of wheat is put into the ground. And of course, as Jesus dies as a result of his death, he does indeed bring forth much fruit. Jesus says, he that loves his life shall lose it, and he that hates his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life. If any man serve me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. 
And then in verse 27 of John 12, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And he says, no, but for this cause came I unto this hour. So the question, of course, is, what hour is this? This is clearly the hour that it has all been about. This particular instant, this particular moment in Jesus' ministry. Well, as you look at the the narrative in John chapter 12, you realize that the hour, the specific moment, is now the time that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, as had been prophesied in Zechariah, Fulfilling the prophecy given by Gabriel to Daniel in chapter 9. Fulfilling to the very day the time of Israel's visitation. The time that their Messiah, their king would come unto them. And Israel missed it. Luke chapter 19 makes it very clear. Israel missed the day. And as a result of that, their eyes were blinded. But this was the moment. This was why Jesus had been waiting and waiting and waiting. And we get to this one day. And it's the exact day, there's 173,880 days prior to this, a command had been given by a Persian king to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And that started the clock ticking. And at the exact moment, Jesus now says, this is the hour. And then the following day after this is when Jesus now rides into Jerusalem. Incredible fulfillment of prophecy. Now, in chapter 13, we move on and we get to the upper room discourse, as it's often referred to. And it really takes from chapter 13 of John's Gospel through to chapter 17. So this is the major chunk, in a sense, of the second part of the book. And so much detail is given in here. It's the longest discourse in the New Testament that's recorded. It begins in the upper room and it ends in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's really the most important foundational passage of scripture for those who are to be his disciples. This is really worth studying in some detail. There are so many lessons for us here. And really for us certainly it's the most challenging portion of John's gospel. A lot of John's gospel is just great narrative. It's great for us to kind of almost feel like we're there. We're part of what's going on. But these chapters really challenge us. They tug at our own kind of heartstrings and our own emotions, our own spiritual state. Really, this was an intensive training session for the disciples. The things that Jesus covers here are giving up the right to yourselves. It's a prerequisite. You know, you can't come to God and still want to do things your way. You have to come and lay aside your dreams, your ideas, your thoughts and plans. The idea of servanthood. Jesus takes the towel and washes the feet of the disciples. Jesus shows them that that is a prerequisite. It's not something that's optional. It's not something that, well, I might try that later. If you want to be a servant of God, you have to be a servant of each other. And we're to serve each other. We're to show the love that he's shown us in our attitude and actions to others. Jesus also speaks of a new commandment that he gives them. This agape love. This unconditional love. A love that's not earned, that's not deserved. And again, Jesus speaks of keeping his commandments, the things that he was saying to them, and makes it very clear that his disciples will bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, you have to question the connection to the root. Ron Matson once said that, and it's always stuck with me. That if you're not bearing fruit, are you actually connected to the root at all? Are you actually saved? Because Jesus makes it very clear, those who are his will bear fruit. And then that we should continually abide in Christ as well. If we're outside of Christ, then we're not part of his body. We're not part of the life that he gives us. 
The other thing that's made very clear in chapter 13 is that persecution will come. Now just think how different this is to today's gospel message. The whole, God will make your life better kind of message that's so often propagated by very well-meaning but unfortunately biblically ignorant Christians. You know, the idea that we're going to be prosperous and take over the world. You know, so many have fallen into those lies. No, Jesus makes it clear, if you want to serve him, there's conditions no condition to our salvation it's a free gift but as part of our walk with him we have to give up the right to ourselves we have to be servants and we have to realize that persecution will come if they hated christ they will hate us now i said i'd clarify this john 13 verse 1 now before the feast of the passover and supper being ended Now this is one of the best verses in a sense to unlock this little riddle for us of the timing of Passion Week. Because we're told two things. One, that the Passover celebration that they were about to enjoy was just ahead of them, before the feast of the Passover. But we're also told that they had celebrated the Last Supper. Now we know also, Matthew makes it clear, in Mark's Gospel as well, that Jesus had had that supper as a Passover supper. He said very clearly, I desire to eat this Passover with you. So the Last Supper wasn't just some random meal. It was a celebration of the Passover. How can we explain these two things? Well, quite simply, we have the Passover meal that would have taken place on the evening of the 13th in our calendar, but for the Jews, it would effectively be the 14th. It would be the next day. That's celebrating when they were delivered from Egypt. It was in the evening. But then the celebration proper doesn't begin until the end of the next day. Because the 14th, this day, is also referred to as the day of preparation. The day they were getting everything ready. Because when we get to the 15th, the day of unleavened bread, which again begins on the Thursday evening at 6 o'clock typically. When you get to this point, no work was allowed to be done whatsoever. So all the preparation, getting food and everything ready could take place on this day, but not when you come to the evening. Okay, so the meal... That Jesus celebrates the Passover begins here on the evening of the Wednesday for us and the 14th for the Jews as it clicks over into the evening for them. And then the actual Passover feast starts the following day. And actually Numbers 28.17 tells us in the 15th day of this month is the feast. Okay, It's the specific feast. This is the, the beginning of this in a sense, time off work for them. The day where no work would be um, uh, done throughout this period of time. And unleavened bread is removed for the whole of this seven-day period as well. So there's no contradiction. Both Matthew, Mark and uh, uh, Luke all use the same expressions uh, with these things. Um, so let's move on. John chapter 14. Still part of now this upper room discourse. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What a statement that is. You see, Jesus is going away. He's made it clear. And the questions really are, what was going to happen now? But notice here, we've got a declaration of Christ's deity. It's just as you trust God, you can trust me. What a statement. Jesus says, you believe in God, well then you can believe in me. It's a statement that Jesus is, is really declaring before the disciples, I'm God. And yet, in their midst. Now, Four questions really are uh, derived from, from this portion. We get, where are you going? How can we know the way? Show us the Father. 
And how can you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So these are the, the kind of questions that Jesus will go on and answer through this time. But we carry on. We read verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is an incredible promise that Jesus gives. And it fulfills a number of Old Testament prophecies as well. Isaiah 26, Zephaniah 2, 3, Psalm 27, verse 5, and elsewhere. That make this promise that Jesus would come, or the, the Messiah particularly, would rescue and save those who are his. That God would keep safe those who are his from a time of trouble that's coming on the earth. Now, we're told... Of his father's house. Where is his father's house? Clearly it's a reference to heaven. How do we know that? How can we conclude that? Well, it's just a simple process of deduction. Jesus said he was going back to his father's house. That's where he's going to prepare a place. Where did Jesus go after he ascended? Back to his father's house. He sat in heaven at the right hand of the father. So we know that Jesus has gone to heaven. That was the place he'd gone. And he was going to prepare something there for the disciples. So clearly, in heaven there are many dwellings. Now actually, Revelation 21 and 22 give us a lot of the details of these things as well. But we need to understand, this isn't just figurative. It's literal, because Jesus says, if it were not so, I would have told you. Now that comment itself doesn't make any sense if this is just some sort of allegory. If it's some picture language, as some people try and suggest. Jesus was talking about physically going or going and preparing something at some place where he would come again and take his own to that place. Jesus clearly is going to prepare a place for us. And by the way, that's why Abraham dwelt in tents when he was here. Because he knew that he didn't have a permanent abode on this earth. There was something better that God was making for him. And Jesus makes it very clear that he will come again and take us back to the place that he's preparing. Now, we have, of course, the heavenly realm and we have earth. And we are currently in this this time as we are now. What the Bible makes clear is at some point in the future, 1 Thessalonians 4 is a very clear passage, but this one we're looking at in John 14 is another, Revelation chapter 4 is another, Luke 21, 36 is another, and there's others we could look at. Make it very clear that at some point in the future, the Lord will return and he will take his saints back to heaven. It's a view that is not popular with the world. It's a view that, funnily enough, is not very popular with the church. The problem is, it's what the Bible says. You cannot get away from the fact that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll come again and receive you to myself and take you back to that place. Now, there are those who question about the timing of this event. But again, as you study scripture, the timing is made very, very clear by a number of passages. Whilst we're in heaven... This place where Jesus will come and take us back, we receive rewards. Matthew 6 talks about the rewards, laying up our treasure in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3 also speaks of the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, which will take place in the throne room before the Lord in heaven. And then, whilst we are in that place on earth, the Lord will unleash this time of tribulation. Now Isaiah makes it very clear that it is a time of judgment on those who have rejected him. It's not just a time of tribulation. All saints will experience tribulation. This is a very specific time of tribulation. Daniel 9 addresses it in verse 27. In Revelation we see a lot of it there. But also um, we find that this duration very clearly from those scriptures will be a period of seven years. 
And just as we see throughout scripture, the Lord will remove his own before he brings judgment. We see, of course, with Noah, with the ark. We see the same with Lot, with Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord will take out his own before he brings judgment. And some people will say, oh, well, this isn't that important. Does it really matter? Yes, it matters. Why? Because the whole issue is, was the cross sufficient? If the cross of Jesus is sufficient, if the blood that Jesus shed on the cross was sufficient to pay for all of our sin, then God cannot leave us here whilst he brings judgment on this earth that is global. And clearly, the context of Revelation makes it very clear that judgment is global. Because if we are left here for that period of judgment, it means that we are not only judged through Christ at the cross, but we're judged a second time in the tribulation. That makes God unjust. No, the issue here is that what was accomplished at Calvary was complete. Our sins are paid for in full, as Jesus declared on the cross, to tell us I paid in full. And that is why the Lord will take his own out of this world when he brings this time of judgment upon the world. And there are many examples you can see of this in the Old Testament, many. Now, after this period of tribulation, the Lord will return with his saints. Do you know the oldest prophecy in the Bible is given by Enoch? And it's a prophecy that Jude records for us, saying the Lord will return with ten thousands of his saints. He comes back with us, with those that are believers. Matthew 24, Revelation 19, Zechariah 14 also address the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes to establish the throne that we were talking about earlier. And then will begin the millennial kingdom on earth, the reign of Jesus for a literal thousand years. There are some people that are amillennial. They'll say it's just a period of time. Some people suggest that it started after somewhere around about AD 300, after the persecution of the Romans. They say, well, that must have been the tribulation. And then Constantine comes and everything is kind of liberated. Christians are set free in a sense and allowed to worship. And so some Christians, well-meaning, just not quite understanding the details, not taking scripture literally, said, well, now we've moved into this era of peace. This must be the millennium. And they actually believe, and you can look at the historical records of this, that it would last a thousand years. But of course we've gone way beyond that thousand years. So then people had to start saying, well, maybe the millennial is not, millennium is not just a period of a thousand years. Maybe it's just elongated time. The real problem is that during the millennium, Satan is bound. Now, at no time in history can you look back and you can observe any time when Satan's influence hasn't been very full on in this world. But during the time of the millennium, Satan will be bound. It's a time that is yet to come, and it will follow the second coming of Jesus Christ when he returns with his saints. <clears throat> then we have, of course, the new heavens, the new earth. We'll look a lot more in detail about this when we get to the book of Revelation uh, in December, uh, not too far away now. But we'll go through and we'll see that the Lord will make all things new. There will be a new heavens, a new earth. And this tabernacle that God has been building, this, this great uh, city, the New Jerusalem, will come down. And God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. It's going to be a wonderful time. We'll look at that in more detail. So, Jesus, verse 6, John 14 carries on. Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. Yes, it's dogmatic. Yes, it's intolerant. Yes, it's very, very narrow. But that is the only way. You know, if you have a life-threatening disease and some doctor will sit you down and talk you through the problems of what this disease is going to do and then finally say, by the way, there is a cure. Do you want it? You're not going to go, well, just one cure. Can't I drink raspberry juice instead? I, I like raspberry juice. 
Why do I got to have the cure that you say? Why can't I do something different? That's stupid. And we know it's stupid. No, you know, God has prescribed the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. There is only one way. Yes, it's dogmatic. Yes, it's intolerant. There is no other option. There is no other way to be saved. Now, man can come up with their own ideas and schemes and whatever they want to do, but this is what God has said. And God is the one who has chosen the way of salvation. And it's to be through the blood of his Son. In Eden, Adam enjoyed three three specific benefits that we could list. He had communion, fellowship with God. He had a knowledge of God. And also, he was alive spiritually. Now, as a result of the fall, we find all of those things he loses. He's separated from God, he's plunged into spiritual darkness, and he died spiritually. Now, that's the state of every human being in this world that has not come to know Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Because Christ then comes to reconcile man to God, he is the way. To illuminate our spiritual condition, he is the truth. And to allow us to be born again, he's the life. You see, that's why there is only one way. Jesus also promises that when he goes away, he'll send another comforter. Now, the Greeks have a number of words that we could use for another, but the one that's used here is alos, is another of the same kind. Okay? You could have another of a different kind. You know, I might be using a, a pencil and I say, can you give me another? And you give me a pen and it's a writing implement, but it's another of a different kind. But if you give me a pencil, it's another of the same kind. Well, that's the idea here. The, the one who's going to be given will be of the same kind. And of course, we know it's the Holy Spirit. The world, we're told, will not know him, but he will indwell the believer. We're also told he will testify of Jesus. How? By the fruit produced in the lives of believers. And this is the greatest evidence. Jesus spoke in John fourteen twelve of the greater works that will be done by those who would go out in his name. And some people have totally misapplied that, thinking that we're going to do some great miracles. And we all, you know, That's not what it's saying. Really? We're going to do greater miracles than Jesus? No, that's not what Jesus was saying. We will do greater works. What were the works that Jesus did? If you study John's Gospel, it's very clear. The works that Jesus did were the things that he did to testify to the Father, of the Father. And the Holy Spirit working in us will do the same thing. The fruit that is produced will be that which testifies to Jesus Christ. Why was the Holy Spirit given on the day of Pentecost? To testify. We'll look at this next week in more detail. So John 15, we'll hold there that Jesus is the true vine. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Now it's interesting because we have the word true vine. Not just Jesus is the vine, but the true vine. The genuine vine. A genuine as opposed to a counterfeit. Now there's two other vines in scripture. Both profess to lead men to the father. Psalm 80, we're told that Israel is a vine. They were supposed to lead men to the Father. And in Revelation 14 verse 9, we have the vine of the earth that professes to lead men to the Father, but doesn't. We're told, if any man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Some controversy around in this verse. Who's it speaking of? Is it referring to believers? Is it suggesting that if a believer for whatever reason, doesn't abide in Christ, that he could be cast forth as a branch and be thrown into the fire and burnt? Is that saying we could lose our salvation? Some people think yes. 
Or is it referring to unbelievers? That anybody who is not in Christ is cast forth as a branch? Well, we've got some study notes on John which you uh, can avail yourself of if you want to. Comments in there simply, in John 15, 1-6, Jesus effectively underlines that which he'd already told the disciples. You see, you can't just take a verse out of context. You need to look at what had already been said. That he was the only way to the Father. Israel were no longer a vine whose fruit would, lead, uh, would be to lead nations to the Father. Neither could the vine of the earth, in Revelation fourteen nineteen, bear any good spiritual fruit. The only vine of value was the true vine. And through his propitiation for the whole world, all mankind now had the opportunity of abiding in the vine. However, if any branch abides not in the vine... It would be spiritually fruitless and therefore taken away to wither and finally be burned. It's an incredible picture of the person who rejects Jesus Christ. Again, the offer of salvation is there for everybody. In chapter 16, we're told of more of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. It's good for you, Jesus says, that I go away. For if I don't go away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he's come, he'll reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. And we see then the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring conviction of sin. And that's what he's done in our own lives. We've seen that. And certainly for those who are not believers, the Holy Spirit will bring that conviction. He will emphasize the need for righteousness. He'll underline the reality of judgment. But notice, he'll not make people bark or do chicken impressions. He'll not make people laugh uncontrollably. He'll not enable us to have miracle crusades. There's a lot done, supposedly, in the name of the Holy Spirit, that clearly is not biblical. Nor will he make us financially prosperous. That's not God's intention. That doesn't mean to say that there won't be Christians who are prosperous financially. But it's not a working of the Holy Spirit. But what he will do is lift up Jesus and the word. The important thing to realize, the Holy Spirit doesn't draw attention to himself. He wants to bring the glory to Jesus. Well, chapter 17 then, this final chapter of this, this great discourse that Jesus gives, is so much for us to learn here. And again, it's very, very much centered on the church. These words Jesus spoke and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and now we get this prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer, by the way. Not the one that we read about in Matthew. This is the Lord's Prayer. The other one's the disciples' prayer. This is the real one. In Matthew 6, of course, we have the one we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But it's really, that's the disciples' prayer. And Jesus, in that portion, in Matthew 6, says, after this manner pray. Now, interestingly, as you look at the prayer that Jesus prays now in chapter 17 of John, Jesus will use exactly the same model as he gave to the disciples in Matthew 6. It's very consistent, the way that Jesus structures this prayer. He prays for his disciples, then and future, And we see a rare glimpse, of course, into the prayer life of Jesus. But again, the key point is that the way that Jesus prays is exactly how he told the disciples to pray. The problem is that just as Jesus said not to in Matthew 6, don't do it by vain repetition, that's that's not how we should pray. Everybody now prays the Lord's Prayer repetitively. Without thinking about the structure of the prayer. It's a model, it's not a list of words that if we pray it in the right order, we'll get some sort of brownie point in heaven. 
It's a structure that we should follow in our praying. And Jesus uses the same thing. Now, it's interesting as well that we also see 14 times in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is called our high priest. We're studying the book of Hebrews on Thursdays. Come along, please. It's a great time. We're learning lots already. But Jesus now assumes that role in this situation as high priest. You see, Leviticus 16 speaks of the day of atonement. When the priest would wash himself, he would put on linen garments. And in preparation to offer this great atonement, the grand atonement for the sins of the people, Christ now does likewise. So the priest would go through certain steps in preparation to offer up this sacrifice. Jesus does the same. Seems to have imitated this. He lays aside his garments, girds himself with a towel. Again, there's no room to doubt that his disciples had been at the bath before. Adam Clark makes that point. It's not that he needed a wash or they needed a wash necessarily. This is something that Jesus does specifically, just as the priest would do. So Jesus is now doing in preparation to offer himself up as our high priest. The high priest then addressed a solemn prayer to God. Jesus now does exactly that in John 17. Again, it was to be for the sons of Aaron. And the Lord imitates this by praying for his disciples. And then for all the pre-people. And the Lord appears to imitate this also in praying for his church and all who should believe on him through the preaching of the apostles and their successors. And then they head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane, um, they cross over the, the Kidron Brook um, to this place. And seemingly, you've got the Temple Mount here. And the Garden of Gethsemane somewhere is believed in this region. The exact location is not so sure. There is a garden there today that tourists that will take the tourists to. It may well be the same area. But Jesus endures six illegal trials. There's three Jewish trials before Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin. And then we have three Roman trials before Pilate, Herod, and then finally again back to Pilate. Interestingly... As part of all this process, when Jesus comes back to Pilate, he's trying to find a way out. And we have the account of Barabbas given to us. The name means son of the father. And of course this speaks of you and I. Because we're the sons of our father, the devil. Because unless you are born again, unless God becomes the father of your spirit, in that sense as Hebrews refers to, then the people of this world, as Jesus spoke of the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. You see, but now, as believers, we've been adopted. We're now called the sons of God. See, Barabbas was guilty, just as you and I were guilty. Christ was innocent. And of course, that is the great exchange. The one who was guilty that should have been condemned, the one who was the son of his father, is allowed to go free. And Christ steps in and takes his place. Barabbas is effectively declared not guilty, and Christ is declared guilty. It's this, this, this incredible exchange. It's he that knew no sin became sin for us. Chapter 19, of course, we've looked at this before. I think in Matthew's Gospel we mentioned this. The sign that's put up on the cross. And the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders, really bitterly protest because what is written in the Hebrew is Yeshua HaNazaroi Vemelka Hayudim. is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And you take the first letter of each of those words and it spells Yahweh. That was the name that was on the cross. Pilate makes the, the comment, what I have written, I have written. Seemingly aware. Now, 
Also in John 19, 42, we read, There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. Now this is referring to after Jesus has been crucified. Pay for our sins on the cross. After this, they want to bury the body, but they haven't got a lot of time. Because that day was a preparation day, and they're just about to get to the feast, the one we've already looked at. So they have to get the body of Jesus, who's crucified, dies around about 3 p.m. They have to get that body into the grave as it's just becoming the new day. So Jesus is buried uh, at that point. Pilate makes these strange remarks because the following day, the Jews come to him, the Jewish leaders, and they say, So remember you that that deceiver said that while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command therefore that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He is risen from the dead, and so the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, You have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. Just wonder what Pilate's thinking. What has God done in this man's life at this point? We don't know. We'll find out in the the fullness of eternity. But Pilate seemingly here just says, Okay, go guard it. Do whatever you want to do. You make it as sure as you can. See if that helps. There was no way they were going to stop Jesus rising from the dead. Pilate seemingly starting to think a little bit deeper at this point. Well, as we come to the end of this incredible gospel, we find that Mary, Magdalene, Peter, John, they all arrive at the tomb. Mary subsequently meets the risen Jesus. And later that day, Jesus appears to the disciples, excluding Thomas, and they receive the Holy Spirit. A week later, Jesus appears again, and now Thomas is present. Interestingly, Thomas doubts, of course, yet he's not filled with the Holy Spirit at that point. You see, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to believe. Mary, though, at the tomb, when she sees Jesus, she turned back and saw Jesus standing, knew that it was, uh, knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom do you seek? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Again, she thinks he's just the gardener. Jesus said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. And Jesus said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and to your father, and to my God and your God. Now, question here. Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. We've got a woman. We mention this when we're looking at songs, I believe. She's lost the one she loves. She searches for him. She'll not give up. She finds a watchman and asks if they know where he is. She then turns from them and immediately she finds the one she loves. This seems to be such a lovely picture of Mary. And this Shulamite in Song of Songs then takes hold of her beloved and does not want to let go until the marriage is consummated. Now, why is this a model? Because if you remember, we've got a situation. That, again, let me just, the consummation can only be at the time that he appoints. It's when he returns in glory to claim his bride. And when he returns, he'll be crowned. That's what we see in Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 11. Now, what we have going on here, this model is interesting, because Mary seemingly is representative of the true church doesn't get tired of seeking Jesus. She longs to be united with him. She wants to reach out and touch him, but she can't until that time that he chooses. See, the heavenly marriage can't be consummated until Jesus says, now is the time. And so Jesus won't let Mary be joined to him. But the question, of course, is why does Thomas get to touch Jesus? Well, 
You see, Mary wants to hold Jesus out of deep love. Whereas Thomas was in his position of unbelief. It's a very different situation. I'll just leave that with you to ponder, to think through. And of course, the day is coming after Jesus has returned to the Father that he will return to claim his bride. And at that time, he will be crowned with the crowns of the saints. We've seen crowning with many crowns from Revelation chapter 4. And he'll be joined his bride for eternity. Just a couple of closing comments. Chapter 20, verse 23. Jesus makes this strange comment. Whoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. Whoever sins you retain, they are retained. How are we to understand this? Well, it's not giving to the church the power to forgive sin. Because, of course, only God through Christ can do that. But this is to say that the disciples were to go out in the power of the Spirit to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. Any who respond, well, their sins will be remitted. Those who reject the gospel, their sins will be retained. But just think what that means to us. That we have the power to go out to preach the gospel and on account of our testifying of the resurrection of Jesus those who respond will gain everlasting life. Their sins will be remitted. In that sense, as Jesus says, whoever sins you remit, they're remitted. But those who reject, their sins will be retained. It's quite a sobering thought. So the conclusion we then get to in chapter 20, we looked at this at the start. The whole point of this is that believing you might have life through his name. There are many other things that Jesus did, but the things that John has recorded is so that we might believe and have this absolute confidence. Chapter 21 then is like a postscript right at the end of the, the, the gospel. It's almost, I'm not sure whether John wrote this afterwards or whether, uh, why he specifically did this. There seems to be a couple of reasons maybe that John wrote this, seemingly to settle two issues and to avoid rumour and speculation. You know we're pretty good at that, aren't we? Did you know that so-and-so? Did you hear what? Well, John seems to want to put to bed two things that were starting to circulate. Firstly, that John himself would not die. There had been this rumour seemingly going around. Because Peter asked the question, well, what about John? Jesus had told Peter that Peter was going to die. And so Peter kind of looks at John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want for him to remain until I return, what's that to you? And so this kind of rumour started that well, maybe John won't die. And possibly been fueled by the fact that John, according to history, had been put into a vat of boiling water by one of the Roman emperors and had survived it. And on the account of that, the emperor was so furious, didn't know what to do with John, so he exiles him to Patmos, which is where he has his revelation. So there was this idea that John was immortal. And John says, no, 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 no. that's not what Jesus is saying. And then the second issue, of course, is that Peter... Or was Peter permanently rejected as a disciple? There may be some in the church that have said, well, you know, Peter, you denied Jesus three times. So you can't be part of the the gang anymore. Well, John addresses that as well and shows us that three times Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then Jesus commissions Peter. It's interesting, Jesus restores Peter. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asks him that question. Incredible grace. One final challenge for us. John chapter 1 verse 3. Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. They said unto him, we'll come with you. And they went forth and they entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. Okay, this is a challenge for us. Because we've been called, we've been saved. 
And when we're newly born again, we're full of wonderful ideas of what we can do for the Lord. And as we grow in our Christian experience, sometimes that vision wanes a little bit. Sometimes we get comfortable, we get complacent. And we do just what Peter is doing here. Peter's waiting. Jesus said, wait until you've been endued with power. Jesus told them to go and wait in Galilee. Peter's kind of like, well, might as well get back to work now. Peter was a fisherman. Well, he was going back to his day job. You know, after all that we have seen, after all that has been done, are we now content to return to our old life? And I don't mean the sin, I don't mean that, but just the kind of the worldly ways of living and relying on the world for everything. See, Peter was jumping straight back into that mold again. But notice what happens. Immediately, they went out that night and they caught nothing. You see, once you are born again, you are no good for this world. Because you've been bought at a price. You now belong to God. You're his employee, in a sense. And the only way we're going to be effective, the only way we will bear fruit, is if we're abiding in Christ. And I think this is a real challenge that even someone like Peter, who had seen all that he had seen, could so easily just slip back into the old ways of doing things. You know, have you and I been fishing all night and catching nothing? You know, the really interesting thing is when they get to shore, because Jesus tells them, throw, throw the net on the other side of the boat. They, they see this figure on the shore and Jesus calls out to them. And so these trained fishermen, they've been doing this all their lives, think, who is this person? You know, so they throw the fish over the other side of the net. You know, I'm not particularly skilled in my study of fish but I think it's fair to say that fish don't know the difference between three feet that way and this way with around the net clearly it was a miracle but the incredible thing is as they pull this haul of fish back to the shore Jesus is there with a fire and what's on the fire cooking? fish, not one of theirs see Jesus doesn't need the things that we can bring in he's got everything he needs he just wants us to come and dine with him to come and fellowship with him. You know, he'll do the rest. We just need to learn. And another great lesson that comes from this gospel is that situation with Mary and Martha. You know, we need to not be quite so busy and just spend time at his feet a little bit more. Let's uh, bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible account that John has recorded for us by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you that there are so many lessons for us here. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, you've given us the model, but help us to use it. Help us to understand how we should pray. Help us, Lord, to be excited too that this world is not our home, that you have gone to prepare a place for us, and that you will come again and receive us to yourself. And Lord, help us also, Lord, to believe, not just to live our lives like we're pretty sure this is. But Lord, to know with absolute certainty, as John was trying to impress upon the readers of this book. And Lord, may we not return to the old ways of doing things. Lord, your word says that when we are born again, the old things pass away and behold, all things become new. Lord, we pray that be the way it is for us. That we would be radically transformed by the working of your Holy Spirit. And as Father, impress these things upon our hearts, we pray. And keep us growing in knowledge and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.